everyone. It's August 20th, 2016, and this is your Et Percussion episode 57. And over there is Laurel Black. Hi. And Megan Arns is here. Hello. And Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. And our guest today is Professor of Percussion and Division Director of Woodwinds Brass and Percussion at the Overland Conservatory. He has an extensive orchestral background as the principal percussionist of the Milwaukee Symphony and has performed with Cleveland and Concerted Bow Orchestras, as well as the Grand Teton Music Festival and the Sunflower Festival, among, among many others. Let's see, he's made huge strides in new music with numerous commissions and is a long-standing columnist of Percussive Notes, uh, many, many more things um, to say about Professor Michael Rosen. How are you? Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm uh, glad to be here. It's great that you guys are doing this, uh, using technology, uh, I think, in a really positive way. It's fabulous. Thank it's you. Hard, it, it's hard using technology for good. We're trying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably, if you were to figure it out, probably more often, you know, trolls and all that junk and less... For, for good. So here we go, especially in our field. Well, and it's it's definitely uh, it's something we're going to encounter very soon because Google Hangouts is going to stop offering this service. So yeah, we got all of a conversation very soon about how we're going to keep doing this. Um, mm-hmm. There'll sure be other ways, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. There's going to be some other way. So yeah, we have till September 12th to figure that out. From what I'm, <laughs> what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, well, Mr. Rosen, how's uh, preparations for school going? What's uh, on the docket for Overland coming up? Well, things are, uh, are looking really well. We've got a bunch of new students, and some of my uh, – actually, the interesting thing is that I've got uh, all but two students graduating this year. Uh, it's kind of interesting how uh, sometimes it bunches up, because, you know, at Oberlin we have a double degree. <clears throat> so I often have students – who are majors in, let me see, I've had a history major and uh, several uh, majors who are doing composition, several are doing a double degree in uh, computer science <clears throat> and all sorts of other uh, fields uh, because the conservatory is right across the street from the college and all you have to do is just walk across the street. And at Oberlin we tend to get the students who are um, multi-talented uh, in many different fields I'll talk about that in a second, but also uh, sort of intellectually curious, which is what I find interesting about the students. And uh, it's kind of fun for me to see um, what uh, what other things students can do. They often come, ooh, ooh, I want to be a percussionist. That's all I want to do. And then they begin to realize that there is a bigger world out there, and they begin to realize that there are composition uh, that they can get into. Uh, for example, I have three students now doing uh, computer science and um, what's called the Tamara program, which is technology and music and related arts, which is uh, sort of combining the two uh, percussion and electronic music. We find that the percussionists tend to really do well in um, Tamara program because they have a, a sense of sounds. Whereas often the people who come directly into the um, computer science, not rather computer science, but electronic music uh, field, uh, are not composers. They don't play of an instrument. Uh, and they, you know, the old thing about, you know, you make a, a computer, uh, computer sound go boop, 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 and everybody goes, wow, that's cool. Uh, whereas uh, percussionists, are, we're used to dealing with sounds. We're used to with dealing with textures, timbres, combinations of those things. 
So they tend to put them together in a really fantastic way. So I really think that that's a fantastic thing. Not only that, it opens up more um, fields of um, study for percussionists. Yeah, I remember I saw a uh, like a YouTube profile of one of your students that I can't remember if it was bi- maybe biology was his other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little profile on that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and those it's really interesting. Those students tend to do uh, as well, if not better, than some of the other students depending upon their um, focus, I should say, you know, because you know what they say, <clears throat> if you want to have something done, give it to somebody who's busy. And uh, that's what these ten- students tend to do. They st- tend to do the work. Uh, well, I've had a biology major who's now in the um, symphony in uh, Florida. And uh, I've had a student who was, oh, Jim Cully. You know Jim Cully, who's in the percussion group Cincinnati? Mm-hmm. He was a, believe it or not, classics and uh, Latin, wow. double degree. Double degree. Wow. So we used to say that he really played Latin music really well. Ha, 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 that's the joke. <laughs> but anyway, so he's in the percussion group, Cincinnati, and uh, several other students who were double degree, who are working in symphonies. Uh, but they, I think it's a great idea because it's a broader world than sometimes percussionists realize, musicians in general, uh, and it's a fantastic thing to extend um, uh, yourself uh, intellectually. Mm-hmm. Be intellectually curious. How long? Uh, how long does that degree program take? Does it add an extra year or two, or can they still complete the degree in four years? They can still degree uh, complete it in four years, but it depends. If you're double double degree, it takes five, sometimes okay. four and a half. But if you're a double major, then it can take four. Okay. Right, huh, but uh, that's the thing about Oberlin. It's it's a special place in that students have to take classes in uh, the college and broaden their perspective. I suggest uh, the students take, for example, music uh, art history classes, because in art history classes, then you can see well, what who was painting when John Cage was writing his music? What was the uh, what was the art movement uh, when W.C. was writing? His music. Why is why is it called impressionistic? And who was painting at the time? And what yeah. were the music? What were the uh, intellectual um, uh, endeavors at the time? Not just music. So um, I really encourage students to do that and to take other history classes and things like that. And of course, um, uh, music history, of course, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I think that's the first thing to go when we're trying to. You know, you're trying to pack music theory and history and percussion and all these things in, you know. And I think it would having an elective of art history, like you said, or yeah. taking a dance class or, you know. Exactly. Studying more in the field of art, but outside our discipline. One of the most interesting things that happened last year was that three of my students, three or four, four of my students were in a dance uh, production where they were on stage actually, you know, playing instruments and dancing and appearing awesome. on stage with the dancers. Boy, did they love that experience. I bet they did. That was fun. so fun. You know, because the um, um, the, the art choreographer used them uh, in both as, a, as musicians and as um, people in the dancers. So, and they thought that was the greatest experience. That's super cool. And it was a great show, too. 
That's awesome. Well, you've talked a lot about your uh, students, um, and we actually have a Facebook question from one of your incoming students about your students. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is a question from uh, Eli Garishat. He says, helping a student find their path can seem very daunting. How do you help someone find themselves in their study of percussion and music, and how do you successfully bring that out in their time spent practicing and learning? Okay. That's a complex question, but I love mm -hmm. it. Okay, what we do at Oberlin very often is that the first uh, semester is only snare drum. Now, students say, well, ooh, 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 I'm going to play marimba. I want to play marimba, and I just want to do snare drum. So sometimes I say, okay, um, let's just try for a couple of weeks, and we start focusing. And the intent is to be very, very focused, not necessarily, although it happens to be, with the snare drum, but the focus is on learning. The focus is on how do you learn as a student. Every student is going to be different. Every student is going to um, face uh, problems uh, that they have themselves. How are you going to solve those problems? And that's why uh, I think doing the, the focus on snare drum really helps. We go through several books. We um, uh, go through um, very detailed because students come sometimes come playing pieces that they're not really ready to play. Uh, I get a lot of students playing pieces that I, I listen to them, and they've actually played them pretty well. But I say to myself, you know, you're not quite ready to play that. You're not mature enough. And we would sort of like to be giving a, a, a 10-year-old um, piano player a, a Beethoven piano sonata. Not quite ready for it. So this is why I try to take the student slowly but surely from where they are to where they will pot, where they will be using their own um, abilities and uh, way of, of practicing. Uh, what I like to say is that the uh, teaching goes on in the studio, but the learning goes on in the practice room. So if you think about that, you know, I, I, I teach, I teach, I teach, but where do you really learn? You're only with me for an hour or two hours a week, but you're with, by yourself for as many hours as you want to practice and you have to discover how you learn. That's the most important thing. I love that. You I should often, have an percussion quote board and that should be right that's on. That's a good oh. one, yeah. <laughs> I, I often say after a student's been there, been there for a while and they, uh, I say um, they're wondering about what to do and, and, and ooh, ooh, I can't do this, I can't do this. And of course I help them with uh, ideas about teaching, about learning. And then I'll finally say, make yourself better. And if you think about that, you know how to do it as a percussionist, as a musician, or anything. Make yourself better. And that's the way um, uh, we, face, we face it. By the uh, second semester, we're starting to do marimba. But it's very interesting how I've had uh, students in the first semester and even beginning of the second semester, ooh, 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 I want to do marimba. I say, okay, so I give them a piece to do. Right? And I start focusing on the, the, the piece. And then they say, no, no, wait a minute, I can't do both at the same time. Um, all of a sudden, their focus is becoming very blurred. So what I think is the important thing is to be uh, focused, and then we go to the next instrument. I've never quite understood, um, uh, I've never quite understood uh, schools that do 20 minutes of timpani, 20 minutes of marimba, 20 minutes of snare drum. I just don't know how that works. Now, don't forget, I'm not saying that a person doesn't do 
snare drum in the second year when we're doing mallets? Of course not. But at least you have a foundation about how to do it. And what I usually say is, okay, your first year, your first summer after uh, Oberlin, your snare drum is called your snare drum summer. And here's where you take all of the things that we've been talking about and you apply it. How do you practice? Do you like 20-minute shots? Do you like two hours, three hours straight? Do you take breaks? Do you not take breaks? Do you like the lights on? Do you like them off? I don't know. Whatever you do. you like sitting, sitting down or you like standing up when you practice? Discover how to make yourself better. That's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, your comments about focus really remind me of conversations I've been having recently with a, a psychologist who specializes in the mental uh, sort of assessment of classical musicians and it'll actually be our next guest but he said one of the most important things is that successful musicians are able to narrowly focus for long yep. periods of time yeah I mean that's what we do it's if you stop and think about it it's kind of kooky you know you, you have one etude or you have one kind of uh, technique that you're trying to perfect and you do it over and over and over again it's not unlike a sports person it really is not uh, sports people uh, do the same motion, a baseball player, if you ever watch, uh, I like to make an analogy between um, percussion and a basketball player taking a foul shot. Watch him. He does the same thing every time. Bounces it twice, spins it backwards, uses one hand, throws it. Mm -hmm. Watch a tennis player, right, for when they serve. Bounce the ball three times, then hold the racket a specific way, lift your hand up in a certain way, throw the ball up, and it's really not so different uh, so that when you get, eventually you get to the point where you don't have to think about it. There's a kind of an interesting analogy about this, and uh, that has to do with competency, competency, competency. When you start out, you have uh, unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you're doing. You're just playing. Then you get to the next stage where it's conscious incompetence. So you know what's wrong, and you're trying to fix it. Mm -hmm. Then you get to conscious competence. Aha, I'm getting better at this. I know what to do. I can think about doing. And, of course, the final result and the, uh, the ultimate is unconscious competence. Watch um, uh, a violin player. Watch Joshua Bell. Watch uh, any violin. They do it effortlessly. And some of the greatest percussionists do it effortlessly too. That's what that's our goal. I hope that helps Eli coming in. He's really enthusiastic. I'm looking forward to working with him. He says, ooh, 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 I want to play. I want to get in there. And that's the other good thing about Oberlin is that there's no question that this guy's going to play because we don't have grad students, you know, at Oberlin. We just have undergrads. So there's no grad students, I hate to say it, who steal your parts, your best parts. But then again, don't forget it. Grad school, often these grad students are uh, paid to play in the orchestra. That's why they are there. Whereas at Oberlin, we, um, we don't have grad students, so I have freshmen playing right alongside of seniors. We recently went on tour to Chicago, played right of spring, and there were sophomores playing right alongside of seniors. Now, of course, you don't expect the freshman to play the timpani part in the right of spring. But what I do do is I'm in charge of who plays what. So if a student is ready and his snare drum roll is really getting good, then I'll give him a snare drum part 
to make him better. I don't just wait until he's a senior. Well, and even if they are just, uh, you know, maybe just playing the Crotales on that or, uh, you know, one of the, sure. the the lesser busy parts or the scrapes or the gong, you know, it's uh, yeah. just being there, you know, just being, being there. In that. Being and, pl and playing with seniors. And the great thing about uh, Oberlin that I love is that the, the students help each other. So that if a student goes over and says to a, a freshman, you know, I think try a different triangle beater on this, maybe a little louder triangle. <clears throat> and the students don't say, oh, uh, you know, shut up. It's my instrument. I'm playing. You can't tell me what to do. <clears throat> no. I try to create an open uh, situation where the student will say, oh, really? Let's go try. Let's try this. Let's try that. Because then you know that you can say the other person, you can tell him or her what they might do to make it better, make the part better. It's a, so it's just con constantly going back and forth and helping each other. It's a simple thing, but it's t I agree. It's touching when you see... Um, you know, one of them, our our, our director is saying, um, "I need a different triangle, something." And the mm -hmm. the fresh the freshman is like, "Shoot, this is my only set of triangle beaters." And mm -hmm. you know, the uh, my senior runs over there and just goes like, "Here you go." It's just like it's uh, yeah, exactly. it's, it's really touching cool. when they help each other. I'm actually trying to change the attitude. I want them to be a little more, you know, combative. That's learning. Really. <laughs> Plus, he didn't tell me he threw the triangle beater at him. You didn't tell me that part. Right, right. Yeah, they're a little too nice. It's not entertaining for me. I don't see how it will be be good reality uh, TV entertainment unless I get a I try, I try to think of um, competition uh, at Oberlin as being a, a creative competition. Yeah. Not, not combative competition. Uh, I'm sure we all know the situation where a student is playing really great in a practice room and the other student goes in and, I don't know, hears him playing and gets angry or whatever or doesn't like the, the, the attitude that they have. Whereas uh, at Oberlin, I like creative competition. Yeah, there's going to be somebody better than you, but there's something that you can learn from somebody. Maybe one person is a fabulous marimba player. The other person is a great hand drummer. The other person is a terrific snare drummer. We can all learn from each other, and that's what I try to um, instill in the students at Oberlin. And it works really well because the students really get along fantastically. That's every, awesome. Every Tuesday night, we have something called Chicken Night. And the students get together to, at the uh, uh, the local uh, the mess hall, and they... Uh, get together and find, well, you know, what instrument do you need this week? What are you playing? Uh, you can borrow my snare drum or whatever. And they, you know, sort of do all the details. It's called chicken night because they used to serve chicken, but they don't anymore. <laughs> but there's a funny story about that because we had a student from Bulgaria, and he was a freshman. And, of course, we said to him, okay, Tuesday you're going to come to chicken night, right? And he, he looked really kind of puzzled. And he walked away with kind of a down face, came back about a half an hour later, says, Mr. Rosen, I can't go. I said, why not? He said, I don't have a chicken. Oh, I heard that he's vegetarian or something. I don't know, whatever. He said, where do I find a chicken? Anyway, it was just so <laughs> I mean, what that just shows to me is that the students are very um, helpful with each other and get along well. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's looking forward to, Eli. That's awesome. I think, you know, and, and to have someone that's able to kind of facilitate that, you know, and encourage that. I mean, I think it comes natu or naturally to percussionists. I think that's why we're, you know, 
other right. instrument areas are sometimes like, why do percussionists, you guys always hang out? Your percussionists are very social people because we're forced to talk to each other. We have we to have figure to, out instrument moves and things. And, but I, I love, I love the story about freshmen and, and seniors helping each other. I was ex- experiencing that at Interlock a little bit this summer too, even with mm-hmm. just, I loved seeing, um, their eighth and ninth graders, graders, but they were, you know, one person had a tambourine, like owned a tambourine and, mm-hmm. you know, who owns a tambourine in eighth grade? I, I did not. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they would share things and I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really great. cool to. It's great. We always, uh, very early. <laughs> the pianists are always very jealous of us because, you know, pianists go into a practice room all by yourself and that's it. Yeah. All by yourself. Where's my latest concerto? Whereas percussionists, we have to work together. We have to talk uh, to each other. We have to talk to each other. We have to share instruments. We have to share experiences. If a student has a class and he can't come uh, to set up for a concert, one of the other students will set up for him. uh, Because the students know that if I can't do it, then somebody will set up for me. I know that after senior recitals, no students here put any equipment away. All the students put the equipment away for them while they stand in the line and have everybody hug them and, you know, and, so, yeah. uh, and you know that when your, your time comes, that, and that's what's going to happen to you. So you help the other people. And by the way, the whole studio goes to dress rehearsals of everybody. Really? Which is really good. You know, and of course afterwards, after I'm there and I give some, some tips, I say goodbye and the students, uh, give tips to each other. That's cool. And it's really good, and it's given in, in, in the best way. As long as it's received in the best way, uh, in the most positive way, it's given in the most positive way. And students, they want that. They don't want to be combative. Well, that's so great. And I've always heard, and heard it said again and again, that uh, classroom atmosphere um, is contingent upon the teacher's attitude and a studio atmosphere is contingent mm-hmm. on the teacher's attitude and personality is just so contagious. And even after talking to you for just 20 minutes here, it's very clear that your personality has just really generated that. And I guess the lesson for students who might be listening is, man, make the atmosphere you want because once mm-hmm. it, it passes around like a virus, you know, make right. sure that's a good virus, you know. And on... on- on that note, I think one of one of the scariest things to me about higher education is I, I think every single year, every university has some sort of discussion of how much of college can we move online? How much can we, you know, because I, mean, I get it, it's expensive, yeah. that makes sense financially and all, but I, I really am keeping my fingers crossed that it's never the case that people basically exclusively do college from home because that just doesn't the whole point of going somewhere and being in that environment it, it generates creativity you can't get yeah. that no I agree yeah. I've often thought of myself as being very very fortunate in that being a musician a teacher we are the last of the apprentice situation Do you know what I mean in other words all professions used to be the apprentice situation. A plumber would apprentice to a head plumber for a long time before he became a, a journeyman plumber himself. Uh, you name it, an artist would be in a studio, Michelangelo's studio for a long time before he broke out and became uh, his own uh, artist. Um, so that we're the last of that where a student comes in, it's just me and the student. And I know more about that student in a certain specific way than anybody else. I know things about you 
that no one else knows. It's just between us. I know how you learn. I know what to give you to make you better. And I try to make you make yourself better. But it's really very fortunate that this is the last of that of that professions where it's just you and me in a room by ourselves, no classroom. And it's, I really cherish that. And I really get to know the students better. Students hope to get to know me better, too. Let's see. So Laurel and I have been doing something in the area called the Stanton Music Festival, which is this fantastic music festival. They program all sorts of music, hundreds of pieces um, for, I, I guess, uh, two weeks, I think. Right, Laurel? Ten days. Twenty concerts, ten days. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's really great. So I just premiered a new trio by Eric Genevin, which was really fantastic. And Laurel got to play one of, uh, one of the coolest pieces out there, I think, which is Ballet Mechanique by yep. George Antiel. And awesome. you're going to tell us a little something about that and maybe a little about the piece. Good. Yeah. How many pianos did you use? <laughs> Two. Four two. pianists at two pianos. Okay. Smaller version. Yeah, it's really a giant piece. You know, it was written for um, uh, player pianos. Yeah, and 16 I, of them. Yeah, and I've only seen it performed like that one time at a PAS convention many, many years huh. ago. And uh, it, it was interesting, uh, but um, it, it sort of uh, the mega version. Uh, but I think the other versions are also good, too. I don't mind it a bit. Yeah, I do too. I actually, I really enjoyed um, being part of this performance, and I'd never played it before. And even the piece, I Casey was listening to it like months ago, not even connected to Stanton Festival. And I remember our desks kind of back up into each other here at our home office, and I turned around and I was like, "What is that? That's so cool!" <laughs> it is the airplane, you know? the airplane. Uh uh, propeller. We went out to the uh, airport, the local airport here, and um, uh, recorded uh, an airplane, a Cessna, uh, the motor. And mm -hmm. then on stage, we had a couple of fans, you know, sort of tall standing fans, turned yeah. them on, but at the same time turned on the sound of the um, of the motors. So people look and say, oh my gosh, the loudest fans I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was really you know, it was written for with a with a, a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since we're here, I'll give um yeah, let me give everybody a little um a background on not on just George but on the piece itself. So George Antiel is actually an American composer, though his name sounds like something else. Uh -huh. Uh, from 1900 to 1959, and in reading a little bit about him, I learned that he was incredibly intelligent and a rather confident. Uh, probably eccentric individual, and he moved to Europe in his early 20s and began in Paris in the 1920s and was one of the few American composers who went there without the express intention of studying with Nadia Boulanger, which I found... Like everybody else did. Yeah, yeah. exactly, like everybody else. Um, but he did cross paths with a lot of other artists and really influential people of the time, such as Gertrude Stein, Picasso, mm -hmm. Dali, Hemingway, Satie, and eventually Stravinsky. Yeah, and he was Jean, really Jean Cocteau also. Mm-hmm. Jean Cocteau. Yeah, and so he. Uh, I wrote in my note to myself. It's basically the entire character list from the movie Midnight in Paris. If you've seen it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Perfect. 
<laughs> that's pretty much who he's hanging out with. And now that I know more about him, I feel like I need to watch the movie again to see if yeah. he was in it. <laughs> Just randomly no, represented. It's an abstract it's an abstract movie by the artist um no, I can't think of his name. Um I can't think of the name of the of the he used to write do these big um outsized people with squares and rounds. Uh, and, and it was really uh, very interesting. And it was never done because the technology at the time, they couldn't coordinate it. Oh, yeah. Are you talking about the film, Valley Mechanique? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. I got his name. So, uh, the project of Valley Mechanique, the piece was originally written to be a soundtrack for a film right. uh, by Dadaist painter Fernand Leger and mm -hmm. cinematographer Dudley Murphy. Right. Um, and Leger. They, they never Go did ahead. it. Because it. They didn't have technology to make it coordinate. Right. Yeah. So the 16 player pianos that we mentioned, it just really didn't work. And in addition to that, uh, Leger and Antiel didn't really communicate. So at the beginning, the movie was only half the length of the music. And right. I think it took something like two years to get them to match. So when the movie premiered, I think it was silent. It mm -hmm. didn't have any music with it. When we did the performance, we played the, showed the movie and played it together. Oh, that's cool. And it didn't quite coordinate, but it's all abstract, so it didn't seem to matter. There wasn't any cues for something mm -hmm. happening, so it just seemed to seemed to work okay. You know, I wrote an article about the Bella Mechanique uh, in Percussive Notes. You might want to go back and look uh, in uh, the archives. Uh, I did a, quite a long article about Bella Mechanique. You might want to take a look at that. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere um, in the archives. I don't I don't remember what issue. Because, well, I, I forget how many, I forget some of the articles. I've written 92 articles. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The terms used in percussion. And I'm, yes. shoot, I'm shooting for 100, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I would did imagine you, did so. You get tenure? Did you get tenure? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite a while. Well, that they called super tenure. <laughs> super tenure. <laughs> <laughs> super tenure, super tenure, that's right. Super tenure, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> no, the, last, the latest article about Sistry, about the Sistry, the latest article I wrote was about Sistry in um, Barbara Seville. No one quite knows exactly what that is, and I hope I solved the problem. Huh. Wow, great. Oh, it, yeah, that sounds really I, interesting. I called it Solving the Sistry Code. Huh. Get it? The uh, code, the... Uh, Da Vinci Code, the Sistry Code. It's, uh, Very good. Oh, never mind. Yeah. So not, <laughs> got not it, got too it. far off from, from Laurel's topic, but those uh, terms used in percussion articles are awesome. Oh, good. Thank you. At, at Illinois, I did my master's degree at Illinois, and they had, like, all the back issues just sitting in the graduate office. Yeah. And, like, I can't tell you how many of those I read, and I was like, wow, would have never figured that one out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I still have people who call me. Or, or send me emails asking me about instruments. I like to approach it from two angles. One angle is, uh, what is the actual instrument? What does it mean? Okay, what does tambour mean? Uh, tambour roulant in, in, in the language. Okay, but also, what is used? So maybe the Philadelphia Orchestra uses something different than the New York Philharmonic, different than the Los Angeles Phil. So I often get in touch with my friends and say, what do you use in this particular piece? Uh, so that gives us a, a double insight into what's uh, practical, what is practically being used, and maybe what 
what is the actual term? Cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, let me see. I had something. Oh, yeah, before diving in a little bit further even into mm -hmm. ballet mechanique, um, George was really passionate and talented in many fields um, and even has a patent in his name with actress Hedy Lamar for Hedy some. Yeah, that was called a secret communication system, yeah. um, which is actually still used in both the military and cell phone industries. And this is actually something that Casey researched a little bit. So, Casey, can you tell us about that technology? Yeah, sure. So, and, and this actually has to do with the player pianos because just a little background on her. So, Hedy Lamar, the actress as we know her, She's Austrian-born, and she has her career in Europe, and she's already in movies and, and known. She marries Fritz Mandel, who's one of Austria's largest arms dealers. He forces her to end her acting career and be hostess to his business associates, which at the time, this is Hitler and Mussolini. Mm -hmm. So at these meetings, she learns about warfare plans and also plans her escape, and it turns out she escapes by drugging the maid and sneaking out the window. And she goes to Paris and then to London and then finally to Hollywood and her career as an actress is rebooted and she's super famous and she's known as the prettiest woman in the world. But She was gorgeous. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and she she's also really interested in... Um, fighting the, the, the enemy, <laughs> and she comes up with this, with this idea that you could alternate frequencies, and they call it, um, I'm forgetting what they're calling it now. Um, Spread spectrum technology. Yeah, right, and she calls it something, and that's what it's called today, and what it was called then, shoot, I have kind of too many notes here, I'm just looking for uh, what she called it. Oh, this was called frequency hopping. So you know, you when you frequencies to often. It was originally used for for uh, um, torpedoes. Well, so they, torpedoes right. would 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 hit their mark, hit their um, uh, where they were aimed. Exactly. So her plan, her her idea was okay. You could have uh, a a submarine have this technology in it, and it would be able to use radio signals to guide torpedoes. But the problem mm -hmm. is the enemy can simply jam the radio signal. Right. And her idea was that the frequency would hop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the frequency would hop from, you know, 90 to 40, back to 21, back to 90, and it would hop often so you wouldn't know which frequency to jam. So she has this idea, but she doesn't know how to keep the transmitter and the receiver uh, in, in synchronization. So... The story is she's at a cocktail party and she meets uh, Antiel and they are sitting at a piano together and talking and joking and flirting and she mentions this concept and somewhere later in their relationship he says, what if you used piano rolls? So the same player piano roll idea that's in Ballet Mechanique, mm -hmm. the concept is, okay, you could have a roll in literally in the torpedo in some mechanics and then one in the transmitter and that way, you You're can use that. 
to yeah. change the frequency in sync, and they would literally be in sync. Um, and she pitched That's this fascinating. idea. Yeah. Uh, Actually, so interesting. Also, the other interesting thing about it is that she never really profited by the use of uh, this technology in uh, cell phones. It was sort of after she died, the cell phones came about. That's right. So she's going to die in 2000, and she she and Antiel get the patent in 1942, and it's only until 1962 that they're actually able to use it because she pitches it to the military, but they recognize it's not practical to keep these physical mechanics. I mean, something as physical as a piano roll, they don't see how that's going to be in, both the, in the entire guidance system. So it's only until uh, 1962 that the uh, circuitry development that they're able to use the same idea yeah. of frequency hopping uh, because obviously you know you can take your cell phone and shake it it's circuitry it'll still work. Uh, so you're telling me the phone does that. not have a piano roll in it. It does not. <laughs> right. A very small piano roll. <laughs> Here I was just thinking to myself. <laughs> that's right. That's good. Yeah, but it's it's really cool. I mean, you think That's about right. you think about two piano rolls of the same. You know, they have these little spots that trigger the pitches. And actually, her her frequency construct had 88 uh, different frequencies that it could be on, just like a piano roll. Um, so you're right. She does not get any money for this, nor does Anthea, because let's see, Lamar and Anthea were awarded a patent in 1942. The military could not adopt the concept due to the current tech technical physical limitations. Uh, with further development in circuitry, Antiel and Lamar's ideas implemented electronically in 1962. By then, the patent had expired, and unfortunately, they never made any money off the concept. Uh, but she does receive recognition uh, for her mind, which was kind of one of her whole things, is, yes, okay, I'm so beautiful, but I want people to know me more for my my scientific um, genius. Have you, ever, have you ever seen any of her movies? You could research some of her movies on on Netflix or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's one. Her first big shocker is a movie called Ecstasy, uh -huh. um, which which she appeared nude in, and I guess it shocked the world that she was nude in this movie. So I think it's so cool that um, the same person who shocked the world by appearing nude in like 1933 is also the person who. Shocked uh, the world with her scientific knowledge. Right, right. Like, what cool irony that, you know, this this is the same person that um, foresaw this technology that we now use in uh, military satellite communication. Mm -hmm. We use Wi-Fi. We use Bluetooth. We use cell phones. Uh, it's literally everywhere, this idea of this, like, changing mm -hmm. frequency on the same bandwidth. This connects to one of my favorite quotes that I read of hers where yeah. she says, any girl can be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. <laughs> I think the original feminist. I want to be known for my like percussion talent, but instead I just it's my looks that keeps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be careful! Be careful! It's, a, feel, it's a tricky spot to go to. Yeah. Casey has a secret life we don't know about. <laughs> no, I get the I get the percussion gigs due to the yeah. Casey, where are you teaching? This place is called James Madison University. Oh, James um, Madison. Oh, you asked me about Don Bick. No, I was the one that asked you about Don Bick. Don Bick. Do you have, um, uh, Casey, do you have uh, Hanger Timpani there? 
Um, let's see. No, we have we have mostly Walter lights everywhere, and um, yeah, so uh, we have four sets of Walter lights, uh, two in each building, and we've got some Yamahas. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, the the hangar Tiffany are at VCU. That's right. Yeah. Good. We're talking we have, about um, <laughs> we have a set of uh, Spenke Tiffany, uh, which are the original Dresdens from Germany. And the story is that um, a, a former student who was a really terrific student, and I can't think of his name, and I will probably before we finish, um, went to Germany uh, for um, um, senior I think it was junior year abroad, and he studied there. Now, he needed some timpani to practice on, so he bought timpani there. Uh, and then, uh, this was right after the war, this was, no, or the war, but it was probably 1965, 6, 7, something like that. And he uh, uh, played the timpani, and then he brought them back as used equipment, like you could buy a used car, a car in Europe, and ship it back. Oh, and that's yeah. how Oberlin got the the Schwenke timpani. And of course, they were left-handed, uh, like uh, Duff played, because Duff was teaching here at the time. So I had them switched to uh, right-hand, American style. But in a matter of two hours, they could be put back to original German style. So I didn't um, ruin them in any way, but just made oh, it wow. better to do it that way. And they sound fabulous. They sound fabulous. Awesome. Well, speaking of sounding fabulous, Laurel, tell us more about Valley Mechanique. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Um, so let me tell you guys more about the original instrumentation. So we've been talking a lot about those 16-player pianos. Uh, but it originally also included four bass drums, three xylophones, a tam-tam, seven electric bells, a siren, three sizes of airplane propellers, and then two human-played pianos. Mm -hmm. uh, and George says the following about this piece, and you'll be able to tell. He thinks it's, he thinks it's pretty great, but this is what George says. He says, my ballet mechanique is a new fourth dimension of music. My Ballet Mechanique is the first piece of music that has been composed out of and for machines on Earth. My Ballet Mechanique is the first piece of music that has found the best forms and materials lying inert in a medium that, as a medium, is mathematically certain of becoming the greatest moving factor of the music of future generations. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he was a little, he was full of himself, right? Slightly. Some yeah. might say. Yeah. yeah. So after that, uh, after that first composition, he made several revisions and eventually um, settled on a version that does get performed quite often now that uses four pianos, but it can be done with two players on two pianos. Um, we did it with two xylophones, but it might have four. Does it have four, Mike? Pardon? Does it have four xylophones, the, the concert version, or just two? I only use two xylophones. Yeah, that's what we did too. Check out my article. It was a long time ago that I wrote it, and I forget, to tell you the truth. Oh, sure. Well, no, you've had so many good things to say. Um, the, the score now also uses two electric bells of different sizes, only two propellers, uh -huh. uh, timpani, glock, and then a myriad of drums and cymbals. And yeah. if you're wondering about these propellers, um, everybody listening, even at the premieres in the 1920s, 
the propellers were actually electric fans, and they would take wooden dowels and stick them in and out, and then that's how they created this sound. Yeah. Although it sounds wow. like your recording of the actual airplanes is also... That was really awesome, because we could make it really loud. Yeah. And, you know, it was done in a small uh, place by a, a woman who was a... Uh, I forget her name. She was a uh, patron of the arts in Paris, and they did it in her in her salon. And, of course, it was completely outrageous to the people who went there. Absolutely, completely outrageous. And then it didn't have another performance for a long time. Uh, it was only sort of with us percussionists who sort of went back to discover it again, rediscover it, that uh, it sort of came out, came out again. But for many, many years it didn't have a performance at all. You know, there's a composer who also wrote stuff whose name is Chelsea, who wrote a piece called Rotativa. Do you know that piece? I know Chelsea, but not that piece. We it's love Chelsea. Yeah, and I think yeah, your, your, your recording of the percussion, it's a quartet, I think? The percussion. No, it's, it's really big, and it's called uh, Rotativa, and it's crazy, and it's sort of the same genre. Of, mm. um, it's on our website, the Oberlin Percussion website. I actually bought it recently. Oh, did you go? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd like to do it here sometime. And but you can see all the instruments and it's just a, it's just kind of I don't know it's uh, it doesn't appeal to me musically to tell you the truth it, it appeals to me sort of as a, 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 an interesting historical curiosity that led to something else I think that this is where it came out of um, futurism in Italy you know you're familiar with futurism uh-huh. with Bala and Cara and all those composers uh, uh-huh. Martinetti who uh, wrote pieces that were uh, had noises in them, rollers and rumblers and uh, all sorts of noise. And that led to, I think, these guys, uh, and by the way, Antio was a uh, appreciator of the futurist movement. If you look up the futurist movement, it's fascinating. And then um, that, to me, led to John Cage. And we wouldn't be where we are today if we didn't have that, um, that ladder, that stepladder of all these composers who led to, um, uh, you know, composers nowadays like um, Motherwell, or, you know, all sorts of interesting composers who are doing fascinating things about sounds for the sake of sounds. And I think that's what they did. Mm-hmm. When I have to say, you, you hear about ballet mechanique and futurism in, say, like the Grout textbook, mm-hmm. um, but it never, and it's like, okay, electric buzzers, propellers, right, that's like stuff of the future. Got it, okay. Those are neat sounds, but it has so much more weight after I've read this piano roll, uh, you know, cryptography, uh, guided guided torpedo thing. It's like it just brings such a different air to the whole thing, you know. Sure, futurism was hip, man, although it was misguided because they loved um, trains, smoke coming out of chimneys of factories, the modern age and all that stuff, and speed, and no, uh, uh, getting rid of everything. They even had a cookbook that said, no more pasta in Italy. <laughs> if you can imagine that, right? They even wrote a cookbook. Uh, so it was really a, a crazy thing. Wow. But it was, it was really hip at the time. They wrote manifestos every other week. It's really something worth going into. I did an article a long time ago about futurism, but I didn't get real into depth. But you should go on um, YouTube because you'll find all sorts of pictures and sounds of the instruments and there's a group nowadays out in California who recreated the instruments and they go around playing concerts 
of these, um, uh, they used to call them um, strumenti rumore, noisy, noise instruments. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, it's well, uh, something interesting that I noticed this morning, I was really looking through the score of Ballet Mechanique. I don't know why I thought I could like quickly analyze it in two hours at 7 a.m., but for some reason I thought that was possible. You're a professional, and, of course. Because, yeah, right? And um, <laughs> I did not, yeah, I did notice something interesting that, you know, it's like, yeah, Antil is, he is a composer. He like knew what he was doing because when the piece begins, just in terms of pitch, you know, I looked at different elements, but just speaking about pitch right now, it begins with a nine-note chord, so mm -hmm. only three pitches missing out of the whole chromatic scale, and he takes us through different, um, like, pitch sets, and he has motives assigned to different sets, and as they come back, uh, you know, you're reminded of that set. He eventually gets to where he's using all 12, Mm -hmm. And then they go away really fast, and he drops it down to an Aeolian mode on mm -hmm. A, and that's where there's a huge propeller like feature where you're supposed to really hear them. He also um, like he also like clusters, right? And that's yeah, one of the sets is like zero, one, two, three, everywhere. Thanks so much for for dropping in and and My and pleasure. joining us. It's it's really great to talk to you, man. Especially thanks for. All your all your uh, teaching advice at uh, at Oberlin is actually really really inspiring. But um, yeah, definitely. yeah, everyone, thanks, Mike Rosen, for joining us. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you guys. Yeah, nice to keep try. up. Keep it up. This is a great thing. Yeah. Thank it's, you. It's really fabulous. Keep it up. Sure, sure. Take care, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you later. Maybe we can we can resume another time. Yeah, I would like to do that because I would like to talk to you about the Japanese. Um, uh, Murma music and how it came to the States and how Keiko Abe came here at first and things like that. Sure. We have a lot more to talk about. Yay. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll do Yay. it. We'll, we, we will figure it out. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of what you need to and we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks again. Bye. Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye, guys.